I've gone around and talked to industry members. What I think we do is underrepresent our industry by not admitting this one key thing that buildings are effectively these incredibly complex systems, the most complex systems, and that we just haven't made tools to drive that complexity. You're listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, real estate, and industry 4.0. And most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data that you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. Welcome to the Beyond Building podcast. And today we have with us Troy Harvey from Passive Logic. I appreciate you having me. I'll tell you how I ended up here in automation and somewhat of an accidental detour that I was an electrical engineer, product designer, designed a lot of products for a wide variety of industries. And somewhere in the early 2000s, 2002, 3, 4, I started doing a physics-based simulation of buildings. And I showed this to an architect, what I had done. And a month later, he came back and said, hey, I've got this high-performance building. Can you help me on it? And then another one, another architect, another engineering firm, and then some developers. And within a couple of years, this was a whole company that had sort of really taken over the previous research I was doing. I was working with the Department of Energy at the time. And what the need was at the time was that was the emergence of green building, high performance buildings, passive house, you know, lead. And people were struggling to figure out how to build these new buildings. They needed some building science help. And what I was doing it didn't have a name at the time, but it was building science and the virtual engineering of those buildings. And I think what was interesting about that experience is a few things became very obvious very quickly was that the building industry had been behind the times technologically and that when we designed really high performance buildings, the higher performance they got, the more green they got, the more environmentally neutral they got, the less likely they were to hit their engineering targets. And so why was this? And we did some research. We started working with Department of Energy on this topic and we found the big problem was controls and commissioning, that no matter how well designed a building would be, and in fact, the more high performance systems you have interacting with each other, the less likely you are to actually make that building hit its targets because it turns out you're violating some fundamental principles of computer science, which is each system you add to a building is increasing the state space often exponentially and making it less likely that you could ever program in sequences the efficient optimal sequence for any given you know, course of action at a given time. And then secondarily, that commissioning piece is, this is very high skilled and very high dollar to do well and something you have to do continuously. And, and in fact, it just wasn't happening in industry. So that's really the initiation of where we start on Passive Logic, where the idea emerged from. Myself, my co-founder came out of the tech industry. He invented the flash drive systems that we all use. I'm at a company called Fusion IO. We got together and started working on Passive Logic about five years ago. Awesome. Super interesting. So basically what you're saying is that the controls industry, they're always late to the show, for one thing. And when they're late for a show and you want a high performance building, it just adds complexity. And because the industry in itself, from an asset maintenance perspective or when they're in operations, it's not that we have a lot of computer scientists. So the building is maybe great 
for a short period of time, if that, because you're also saying that it's really difficult to get these things integrated. So is that the fundamental problem that you try to solve and that you're solving right now then with the passive logic? That's the fundamental problem. I've gone around and talked to industry members. What I think we do is underrepresent our industry by not admitting this one key thing, that buildings are effectively these incredibly complex systems, the most complex systems anybody makes. And that we just haven't made tools to drive that complexity and we need to align the two, right? I definitely agree. And right now I'm in different industries, so I also get to see that it's not a greener pasture on the other side of the fence. I don't know if that is a poor translation of a Swedish saying, but in all the other industries, as in automotive, you should compare with that one or healthcare or whatever it is. They also have their problems. Of course, there are companies in all industries that are leading the pack. They're doing stuff, not only having these open APIs, but actually providing meaningful data. And then, of course, we're going to go into really well. But I think when it comes down to the nitty gritty aspect, semantic interoperability and these kind of things, I know that most companies, as well as most industries, are really lagging behind. So I think it's interesting that you're tackling one of the also the hardest or the most challenging industries, which is construction, real estate, and the entire real estate life cycle. We're both lagging behind. We need to invite in the people who want to solve these really hard problems. And we've been doing a passive logic as we build team is we go to people who are working for autonomous vehicles companies and we say, you want to work on really hard robots? Sure. Leave that simple stuff behind and inviting those people into those really complex problems that you know builders represent. Awesome. You started five years ago and of course a lot has happened. So where are you right now? Passive logic, like many of the players that we just mentioned about in the autonomous vehicle industry, we're working on the big core technology, right? And so we've, for the last few years, been putting together what this new platform, this new foundation would look like. And we're in pilot right now. We've got a few dozen buildings in pilot. We have expanded betas that we'll be doing this summer. We've got some big strategic partnerships with large players that will be going into their building in the fall. And then we'll be going to general market where the average listeners will be able to purchase this stuff next year. Now, there are some things that you can use more quickly than that. And that's talking about quantum. We spent the last several months, maybe six months at Passive Logic, rewriting our code all around the version two of the quantum standard that we're going from what was an internal project around ontology to a an open project around this more expansive ontology that we've been invested in by the Department of Energy and several mm-hmm. industry partners to go drive a new standard that fills a big hole in the marketplace today. So when you say open, what does that mean? Is it open source or is it more open? And again, I think I mentioned this before we started. Does it need passive logic stuff to be able to work with this? Or is it something that the industry can use other standards and ontologies like Brick Schema, Haystack, Real Estate Core, a digital twin data language from Microsoft or Google Business Ontology, where you said it's like it's filling a gap? Yeah, and I think that's really important to like designate, like what are all those things and what are they doing and what's thing missing? And so we can talk about that. But yes, it will be open. Anybody can use it. Take one of those you mentioned, Haystack, and I think it's a really good example. There were two or three Haystack-like initiatives that tried to go through standards bodies approaches before Haystack arrived. And most of those fell on their face because there wasn't like, what are you going to target with this thing? And so I think Mm. there's actually often a coupling between what's the killer application for something and what's the standard that everybody can use that targets that thing. And Haystack was really in service of how do I make SkySpark, right? And so in making SkySpark, they had to make Haystack and then you make Haystack open and more broadly people can use that. Haystack on its own probably wouldn't have been very successful if it didn't have the target in SkySpark. 
And so I see that very much the same thing here. It's like when you get a bunch of standards body people together, they often start like creeping towards this retrospective view of the industry of like, how do we support 20 year old ideas as you're wrangling between all these partners about what their idea of the market should be. Whereas if you couple like a tool, a platform that people like desperately need to make their company or the business or, or their buildings go to like a technology that enables it and enables a wider marketplace. Well, that's a really successful recipe. And that's what we see in quantum is that quantum can be used outside of passive logic. Quantum's right now in beta. It will be in public beta in the next few months. We'll have tools around it that you can build your own quantum of digital twins. There's never been tools for this kind of thing before where you can go in and create as a user, a normal user, mm-hmm. your own digital twin without being a programmer, even as lightweight as an XML user. So those will be available this summer as well. We have two large software suites. One is the Quantum Creator, which allows you to build these digital twins, and mm. Autonomy Studio, which is, again, software that anybody can use. But at the end of the day, you use digital twins to construct a system, and then that system gets described into Passive Logic's control platform. We see that product, you can use it for other purposes, but it really, at the end of the day, is going to enable your control system. But it is a workflow automator. So people are doing automation today as a business. Autonomy Studio, even if you didn't use Passive Logic, is an automated workflow for doing any kind of automation project, even if you were to go and do not Passive Logic install. So So it can work with other stuff, but you really want to use it to its full extent to make it shine. You definitely know it works well, to put it lightly, uh, with yeah. passive logic, right? And I think that's where, like, maybe referring then to Haystack for SkySpark or Brick Schema, or like, I know that also Real Estate Core, the Swedish initiative, they have their own, the PropTech OS, the PropTech operating system. So I think that's cool, actually, just seeing that right. as well, that you have these open source kind of things that work well standalone, but if you want to have them automated or you want to have them shine or excel, then there are products or solutions out there that are made to work with them in that kind of way. Does that make sense? Let's spend a little bit of time talking about what quantum is and how it's different, why that matters from all these things that we're mentioning. Because I think sometimes, first, for passive logic, why it matters, just like Haystack mattered to enable analytics in SkySpark. Quantum needed to exist to enable fully autonomous buildings. And so that we see as a company as the obvious endpoint of automation in in buildings is full autonomy. How do you get there and what do you need to sit on? And it turns out what quantum solves in full autonomy, it solves everything down the levels of autonomy stacks. And so when we talk about smart buildings, you and I have talked about this before, I really would like in the industry to promote a standard around levels of autonomy so that when we get into a conversation, we can say, no, I'm talking about a level five full autonomy solution, or I'm talking about a level one traditional control with a little ML on top kind of solution. It helps like clarify what we're talking about. So if you can solve full autonomy, you can solve everything down, right? If just creating a ontology or a schema for something that's like a level zero, level one kind of need. So Haystack would be very level zero type of need, right? It's going to tag things, <laughs> but it provides some labeling that machine learning could use, but it's not really yeah. going to help build that machine learning for you. And so what does Haystack do? Haystack was about yeah. taggings and important, but it's a first step, right? And it's a manual step. And that's part of the problem. It requires mm-hmm. everybody to go do it manually. So then you have Brick come along and Brick says, well, Haystack's labeling, but what it's missing is connections. And then this is the biggest differentiator between Haystack and Brick is that one's labeling with connections. Now, the two groups I'd suspect if you talk to Haystack would say we're more of a semantic ontology that's a little bit more formal. 
But I think as the user is concerned, they're not that different from each other, especially as Haystack has evolved. So I, I would say that a little bit of the challenge with Brick is it didn't make a big enough step beyond what Haystack already was. So that's like labeling world, right? Like that's how to describe things. Then you go to protocols. So you have things like BACnet is the strongest driver in protocols. How do two boxes talk to each other? And the thing about protocols, and frankly, for that matter, semantics, because some protocols also have these semantics, right? Like in fact, in 223, what we're really essentially trying to do is take the brick, the haystack-like abilities and put it right into the protocol itself. And there's many protocols that do this. And over the last 20 years, more protocols do this. So Bluetooth, mm-hmm. Zigbee have these sort of reference profiles. So that's helpful because now two devices talking to each other, they can instead of saying, I've got a point, they can be like, well, my point is a light or something that's describable. But one of the things about these protocols is people keep on inventing more of them, right? So quantum is not any of those things, although it can replace some of those things. Its goal is very different. It is what we call a true ontology, which is what are things fundamentally? And it asks the question, if you divide questions up into human to computer, that's what Haystack is, right? It's trying to describe computer things in human terms so you can read the label. Then you can have some analytics consume that label. That's human to computer. Backnet's computer to computer, device to device. But it's not very descriptive, and that's been its real weakness. Evolve slowly towards being more descriptive. And that's why you want to use it in combination with the aforementioned Haystack, Schema, Real Estate Core to provide more meaning so that objects or whatever devices can communicate with meaning. But I think like what you're after, it's a lot of dialects, as we know, and it's a lot of manual stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have a direct linear equation directly to AI enablement at scale. Right. No matter labeling's ever going to automate the AI around something, the AI cares about what is something really, right? And yeah. so the way I describe this is I can have a robot that I build that drives around the office here and it has a little laser scanner and it doesn't hit any walls, right? Like that's like this protocol level, that's ACnet. It's like it can say, hey, there's a wall a certain distance from me, but it doesn't know what's that distance from it. It just knows that it's there. And so BACnet can go query that something's there. It can have points, yeah. but it doesn't know what it is, right? Then you can put a camera on it and it can like use image recognition to be like, there's a wall, there's a door, there's a person, there's a dog, right? That's labeling, but it doesn't know anything about a person or a dog. It can't do anything with that. So this kind of puts you in this in-between world that, yeah, you have a lot of labeled information, but what do you do with that? Yeah, well, what everybody's doing today with it is they're throwing in what we call, quote unquote, data lakes, right? You're just filling up these oceans of data. And then you're like, go, dang, what am I going to do with all this data? And then you hire a bunch of data scientists and they go dig around like miners, hoping they might find some value. No, it's a data swamp, basically, right? And then trying to make sense of it. it, And I think most companies are finding not all that valuable and they invest down that path. And then they're like, why did we invest down this path? Where's the value? So then the last thing is true ontology, true existentials, where that robot is driving around. It's like, hey, there's a door. I know what a door is. A door sits on hinges, can swing. It has a knob. You can turn it. That unlocks the door. When you swing the door, I know that there's going to be some zone, some space that I can drive through to on the other side. And if you don't understand that notion of what a door does, that a door routes you from one zone to another zone, then it's not meaningful, right? So let's retract for a moment and talk about digital twins because this is also a muddy turn. I think everything is, right? I think that's yeah, part yeah. of the problem as in the twofold, right? So digital twins, so that's my territory to some extent. And just hearing digital twins has me, I've been working in this space for what, two, three years, really investigating what digital twins are. And the problem is also with the connotations of when you say digital twin, 
One is the digital, which is ones and zeros. It doesn't necessarily mean virtual or visual in any kind of sense of the way. The twin, it also makes you think that you always at all times need a physical representation of something, which is not necessarily the case. But then, of course, what does the industry do? Well, of course, we're going to find definitions of what a digital twin is, and we want the whole industry to conform to this standard or to this whatever definition, which is never going to happen. Exactly. I think that's one of your challenges. And then you get enough people together and they're like, well, let's get this done in the next decade. And then a decade later, they still don't have tools around it, right? (laughs) That's the first thing we want to solve. But people's notion of what a digital twin is inferred by what technology they're targeting. And I think this is where passive logic is really defining the edge of the marketplace, that we're building truly autonomous platforms for not just buildings, but the systems inside of them, process control, this wide range of things that are what we'd call generative autonomy, not vehicle systems, but all these other systems. So given that as a target, when we differentiate what our goals are, if you look at Microsoft's notion of digital twins, it's like a programming language in the web. It defines what a float is in an integer. Like these are mm-hmm. very low level concepts and arguably not useful or interesting. I tend to agree to some extent, absolutely right. This is also what I've heard. It also goes back to the whole automated way of working as well. And it works to some extent to link stuff together I remember when you said this the first time, the deep digital twins and physics-based deep digital twins, all these kind of things. But why it matters for me, just thinking about it, is you can pass the test of time because you're leaving it in a way that is not descriptive of a hype technology right now, but you're actually basing it on something like physics-based or something that, again, can pass the test of time. Is that true? regressing to that point that we need for the next several decades. Now, in Passive Logic's case, we'll be delivering product around this within the next year. But I think whether or not some of the big automation companies get there in three years or five years or 10 years or 20 years, that's not relevant to us, but it will absolutely happen for the industry as a whole. 10, 20 years from now, people would be like, you guys were using like, Grandpa, were you using PID back in the day? And so you need to have that future view of where we're hitting and then work backwards. Mm. The challenge, I think, is physics-based digital twins, it's rather sophisticated. So has this been done elsewhere? You're poaching down people from autonomous vehicles and all these kind of things. Have that industry, have they reached this level of autonomous ways of working? Or is this the first industry that you see, that you know of, that is aiming towards this level of autonomy? No, this is the first industry. I think when we look at autonomous systems, the key one we can pick up and grab and hold is, is like the vehicle industry, right? And they yeah. were just as behind the times 15 years ago as buildings are today. Past logic to doing is not just unique to buildings. And in fact, as we work with a lot of strategic partners, they're bringing to us all these problems that we didn't even consider as being building problems. And it turns yeah. out what we're doing is the generative autonomous platform that can automate a lot of problems. And it's not just mm. building problems, right? Because buildings are in its context. So I guess that you started with buildings and then you saw, okay, we need to interact with the grid. And of course, that's your background anyway. And then you saw that the grid maybe needs to interact with something. So it's just fleshing this out. All this economy happens within and around the shell of buildings that are tied to those buildings in some way. But that's IT systems and information flow or boxes moving throughout uh, logistics centers or all these flows that are really interacting. They're touching one another right now, but right now that they're in silos. And yeah. so I think that's where a lot of these different players throughout the world are, are looking at what we're doing and saying, wow, that solves not just my building problems, but all the exactly. operational systems yeah, within yeah, that building. Yeah. But in terms of graph technology and yeah. graph databases like Neo4j and Cypher as in their query language and these kind of Apache Kafka and event streaming, there are a lot of these kind of things that are the cutting edge 
graph technology, it sounds like that is a part of what you're doing, or is, have you yeah, invented something else? No, I think graphs are a really good foundation, right? But, but here is where we see this intersection where how do you make things accessible? And we have this whole team of PhDs working on digital twins. What we want to enable is everything those guys can imagine still make it accessible by the average installer. And so how do okay. you do that? You want to democratize this, right? We have to have a PhD level to be able to do these kind of interactions and to get buildings where they need to be. You want to democratize this and you've done it in a way that I didn't like at first. I think you remember that, right? But yeah. I actually see the point right now for the listeners who don't know that much about passive logic yet. I think everyone is going to go to their browsers and look up passive logic when we're speaking. But you have a product line right? Or a solution, like a complete solution with sensors, hardware, software, all of these kind of things to go into buildings. I think that's how you are able to democratize this as well, because you have your ecosystem. So technology can serve on behalf of the user to bridge the divide, right? From my perspective, I don't see a big gap between the novices and the experts. The story is the same for either one. Today in building automations, it's equivalent of like, I want to use a word processor. And first you have to write the code for the word processor before you can write your document in the word processor. That's ridiculous. Let's build a word processor and everybody can (laughs) just use it, right? So I think, and that word processor is in service of you, whether you're an expert user or a novice user, and those aren't different. And so that's where tools come in. And that's where an open source approach will always lag, right? It just has, there's some places that open source really works well. It works well for programming tools. It works for libraries. And those are places that we use open source and we contribute to open source. But then there's places of innovation that just naturally don't fall into the open source category. And that's where the Hive and Autonomy Studio and all these other products live. That's the gap we want to fill. And, and hopefully that makes sense of with Quantum, what is it there for? It is the sort of information piece, the tradable file format that a autonomous platform can use. But at the same time, it can be an API for building a user application on top of that gives you a rich first class, high level API for building services on top of buildings. And it's back to your graph question where we went down a path here, but the graph it is built on accessibility APIs like GraphQL which we're a big supporter of, like instead of, you talked about a number of graph databases. Those are cool technologies, but honestly, I think where we need to focus as an industry is not getting necessarily too lost in triple stores and and graph databases and and go where the programmers are, right? Like we're not where the programmers are, they're never going to use the tools. I've interviewed 500 people over last year. I asked every one of them, do you know what a triple store is? And not one of them knew what a triple store (laughs) is. I agree. But at the same time, I think we are the ones that are trying to you know, come up with innovative solutions that will pass the test of time. I think it's so important that we definitely know about it. But I also agree that the ones that are working with us, even whether that be developers or you're democratizing this for construction people or building automation people, whatever that is. I actually bought an iPhone now. I've been an Android user for my entire life, but I bought an iPhone. So I don't know exactly what's going on, right? And I don't necessarily right. care. I just want to use it and I just want to get stuff done. And with iPhone, I don't have to worry about integrating or searching for how to integrate stuff forever. I just know that when I'm in you know, the Apple ecosystem, I know that it works together. And I think that's also why I've done, a, I wouldn't say a 360, but maybe 180. And understanding yeah. that you definitely have a place in this ecosystem of building automation or buildings or real estate because you provide that holistic sort of like ecosystem that hopefully, of course, works well, instead right. of trying to you know, piece these kind of things together and <laughs> hoping for the best. 
Yeah. And I think Apple in this case, from the user's point of view, they just want a phone that works. But there's actually multiple customers on the face of uh, iPhone or on an automation platform. So the other thing that Apple does extremely well is they provide fantastic developer tools. And it's such that even very big companies often will release an iPhone six months before they launch their Android version because there's just so much more brain damage on the developer path to manage Mm. their Android development. They control the ecosystem more, right? Control, but it's like super open for a developer to go build the applications they want and super accessible by the user to get done what they need to get done. And then from an open source point of view, they are like one of the biggest contributors to say compiler tool chains, right? And it's like the leading compiler tool chains in the last 15 years are all from the Apple like developer division, LLVM, Clang, Swift, all these tools that every single language these days is using LLVM. So I think it's a good model overall yeah. and is actually in some ways the most open, right? I guess the question could be asked, there's 5 million iPhone developers in the world. And in terms of productivity and what they're pushing out there, there are so many more developers in that camp than say, pick your favorite flavor of Linux, right? It's a very dead market as far as pushing products into that space. I think like if someone wanted to have something happen in five, 10 years or 20 years, whatever, or within that time frame, I think that's great. But you're creating a product, getting that into the hands of people. I know that you work extensively with actual users and understand how to figure that out and build your hardware and software solutions to cater to the ones that are at the forefront and working with this from an operational perspective. I think that's fantastic. Okay, going back to the point, what is the main difference? If you go with you know the, all the building automation solutions that are out there right now, if they when Passive Logic hits the market next year, next summer, or even before that, what can they expect in terms of the difference between maybe the cost, or is it the time aspect? Is it ease of use? And is it for new construction? Is it for existing buildings? Is it for retrofit? And where do you sit? So its costs will be very similar to what people pay today. So generally speaking, if you're talking about a price point that's above $50,000 or 50,000 euros to deploy, you're going to see Passive Logic at a very similar price point to the automation systems you use today. The thing yeah. that's really different on cost is if you go below that number, most of those systems that you use today don't really scale down. And yeah. so Passive Logic allows you to scale down to about that 1500 euro, $1,500 price point. Oh, wow. We believe, not to overuse the iPhone example, but like Tim Cook doesn't get a better iPhone than you do, right? Like a skyscraper doesn't get a better control platform than a little corner coffee shop. So scalability, that's the first thing. Uh, Second thing is the time to deploy that from the amount of programming you have to put in, in the two platforms, there has a lot of programming free environment. It's all digital twin driven. And you'll be able to get in and out from design, deploy, wire, commission about 10 times faster than you will with conventional platforms. So while there's this huge field of like value adds, right? Energy efficiency, maintenance management, like mm. real time commission, all those things, our founding principle is you shouldn't have to care at the point that you're going to do a job. You'll just say, am I going to use Passive Logic or the other guys? And it's the same price or better, and it's going to be 10 times faster. Decision done. And you've got 30% energy efficiency, and you've got maintenance management yeah. tools, and you've got analytics built in, and you've got all these things that normally you're in a value add like decision point, and you don't have to make those value add uh, decisions. Awesome. I think that's pretty cool. I actually remember when we talked about that last year that there is an underserved market in between you know, like home automation and the classic side of building automation where it's 10,000 square feet and above, right? Have you seen already a clash then between home automation players that are moving up 
Have you seen that those are competitors yet or are you anticipating that they will be? So I see more the opposite. It's in two different lanes, right? So absolutely, home automation technology has on things like IoT devices is moving up into commercial and and that's going to be great for commercial. What's not happening there is home automation isn't any better off than commercial in terms of being like smart, right? They're still at mostly level zero, level one technologies. And so I think what we'll see and then through some of the strategic partnerships that we're working on right now, we'll see more the passive like full autonomous platform pushed down into that over time. Oh, we're, interesting. We're more focused initially on that commercial side or in this commercial world, multifamily residential. Yeah. Well, have you seen the series uh, Silicon Valley? Absolutely. The middle out strategy. That's basically what you're <laughs> talking about, right? You're coming in through the middle, you're middling out, both going up, both going down. We don't have to go into how they came up with the middle out strategy, right? <laughs> but I don't know if that's how you came up with it as well. That would be another podcast. Okay, so I think that's fantastic. And I think that's definitely what is needed. I appreciate that perspective as well, because the IoT is getting stuff connected, but it's still lagging, I think, the semantic interoperability perspective. And even that, you provide these levels for autonomous interaction. So... You can do this and also appreciate the fact that you're going out and you're trying to solve like the hardest problems and then everything else is easier. That's been like my modus operandi the last seven years and trying to find companies like yours or technologies that can solve everything. Because if I go to those players in whether that is in healthcare or building automation or autonomous vehicles, then I know what the others will do at some point. I think that's sort of like a pretty good play. But for energy side of things and building automation side or building management side, or is it more from a holistic foundation for smart buildings, would you say? Yeah. Well, so it's a holistic foundation for that whole class of automatable or controllable things. So since probably you and I last talked, as we had more strategics come in, some of our long-term vision became a little bit like nearer term in trying to solve their problems. That what Passive Logic had developed around quantum and autonomy studio isn't just an autonomous platform for buildings. What you do as a user is you describe your system that you're controlling and it's generating an autonomous platform for that unique scenario. And that's actually a super powerful idea with a wide range of applications. We are very focused around the building space, but it turns out most of those applications live in and around buildings too. More companies and organizations and REITs and manufacturers are thinking about their interplays there. Some of our people are super automation driven, right? Some of our users have very light needs on the control side, but what they need is they've got this proliferation of IoT devices and there's no rain that brings all those together. And the best they Mm. can do is like stream them up to a data lake up in the cloud. And then the most valuable part, the actionability is largely lost by the time it moves the, the edges of the building. We provide that edge platform that can join that together in Quantum Digital Twin as a unified information network, that the more things you plug into, the more that world fills in. When you say an edge platform, can it run on the edge solely or is it connected to your cloud platform? So this is a really important topic and we think it's important for buildings, it's important for process control, and it's important conception, which is most buildings are not connected. The people in the buildings are connected, but the buildings aren't connected. And there's often reasons that people don't want them connected or they want them air-gapped. And so systems have to run independently. They have to run at the edge. And the cloud then provides other features that you may or may not need. And what we see in the last decade is there's been this artificial drive, largely investment-driven towards the cloud and maybe ease-abuse-driven. But like a lot is lost. And there's certain things you just can't get if you have AI in the cloud. 
You're not going to get real time. You're not going to get the resiliency that you require. Yeah. In a, in no, a especially process. in buildings, right? It's local control right. first. But I think that's where a lot of companies haven't really understood this. So it's just feeding the cloud monster and then missing out, or it will get too expensive once they add more stuff from the buildings, or even more so from the context of the buildings. And I don't think it's going to work. There's one more important thing I just want to point out there. More and more, it's it's this term that we coined here at PassLogic, this term of like autonomous buildings. I see proliferating in things that are like by definition, exactly the opposite of autonomous buildings, right? Like by definition is not autonomous if it's all happening in the cloud and you're connected by a wire. But decision-making happens at the edge. If you want to enable the cloud, you can. And that's more for portfolio management, remote access. Exactly. Like for fleet management, so to say. Going back to the autonomous, like the Tesla aspect, right? The Tesla cars, they have to work independently. They have uh, to be at the edge. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be a world of hurt. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Is there anything left that you haven't solved then? Or is this just a matter of time before you reach world domination that this sort of quantum amoeba stretches out from the buildings to the smart grid to every corner of our earth? Is that your plan? Is that the master plan, Troy? Tell us now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there are domains, right, that this solves a particular domain of problems that are those in and around building uh, problems. I don't know that when we talk about digital twins, I think it's a big reach for anybody to say, like, I've got the master digital twin that solves all problems. And that's probably why you get into those like digital twin standards are like, oh, it's like a bunch of floats in it definitions. That was so general, it's not like kind of useful. We've got this around controllable systems, and that can be a very broad set of notions. But what it does that's really important about this edge question you were asking is it's not just the definition. I made a point in the article that you're referring to that it is the AI. And so just to define that a little bit, today, AI is mostly driven around what we call deep learning systems. And in deep learning, there's a few topics there that are a little bit getting long in the tooth that there were like using up the innovations of 10 years ago. And most people are still like banging away at that. And that's like what we call naive neural nets, where each neuron just does like this really naive function that has nothing to do with your problem set. And so what quantum really is, there's two core pieces, actors and quanta. There's some Mm -hmm. other pieces that are unique that you don't find in other standards, but actors and quanta, you can think of as actors, as those neurons, what something is, and quanta as the interconnections of the neural net. Quanta can fully describe one of these deep physics type systems. You can just start controlling around. And so when you use as a user a toning studio and you're drawing, like I got a boiler connected to a pump, to a buffer tank, to a manifold, blah, blah, blah. From the user's point of view of drag and dropping and connecting these digital twins, what that sort of magic behind the scenes is you just actually assemble the neural net that is around these physics notions of Mm -hmm. what they are. It's instantly controllable. It is instantly learnable. It's instantly introspectable. And you can display analytics out of it. You can do error detection, all these things out of this one shape. That's why quanta fits this big set of needs as opposed to like these one-off, like, is it a protocol or is it semantic? I think like it augments the stuff that has already been done. And I think like that, it provides right. these top layers that otherwise would take a lot of time to get there. And because it's a fragmented industry, who, who would actually do it? So you're That's actually right. coming in and providing this on top of the stuff that has already been done. Top layer is a good term because yeah. we're not looking to do is replace all protocols. We know that there's a bunch of them and people will make more. When I was studying IT management, and this is definitely a sidetrack, but there is Bruno Latour. I don't know if you heard about him. So he had the actor network theory. So you're describing that in some way, shape, or form, but providing it more meaning around it and actually defining what he was talking about. 
So he was making this actor network theory that in all networks, you have actors, and then you have the network, and you know how these things interact, irrespective if that is people to people, machine to people, or machine to machines, they need to sort of like behave in a structured way with each other, right? Super important concepts, yeah. though. Yeah. It's very applicable. It seems that you solved a lot of these kind of things. And yeah. I think you're unique in the way that you're using these kind of technologies to solve these problems. And I think that there's a lot of companies that are working with these kind of technologies, having the same approaches, graph technology, working with ontologies, LPG, RDF stuff. I think where you're ahead is where you actually have the products. Yeah. You created well, like and, hardware and stuff and solutions and the visual interaction pieces. So when you yeah. see Deep Digital Twins and right. you have the visual components, I've seen like some of the visuals that you presented on your website and these kind of things. How important do you think it is to have that visual representation from CAD files or the actual building? Or is it right. more like the floor plans? What do you think about the Digital Twin as in using Unity, Unreal Engine, these gaming engines yeah. to actually represent the building as it looks like? And that you have yeah. like the quanta to provide the meaning in between. Is that something that you're looking at or is it more the floor plan stuff that you're working with today? It's a super good question. Quantum, I see it very standing out in a unique space and we can better differentiate. When we talk about other digital twin efforts, mostly what I see is what you're talking about, this notion mm. of what I call BIM in the cloud, right? Like a cloudification of BIM data okay. that then you can attach data points to. Yeah, I link stuff more than yeah. anything else. These make really good demos. The question is like, have they found the really killer application that somebody wants to invest in? So I believe in that stuff and we're working on some really cool stuff there. Uh, you'll come to see some stuff over the next few months, but I think it's secondary. Like I believe this notion that what people pay for is mm. control. They pay for the building to work. These sort of like fanciful, like interaction things, they can make the happiness go up, but they can't replace <laughs> the core fun. Yeah. If it's just like, how do I fly around my building and explore data sources, but it doesn't actually do the core action that people are paying yeah. for, it falls into the analytics trap, right? Like you had all these companies running out to analytics and then once everybody got there, they're like, but what do I do with all this analytics, yeah. right? You have fancy visualization, you can see everything that goes wrong, or do you want to have a program or a system that actually solves everything that goes wrong, but not necessarily visualize it in a way that you can fly around stuff? I think right. most people, asset owners, definitely, they don't necessarily want to see, you know, here it's broken, this doesn't work, we can't connect this. But instead, resting assured maybe that their buildings are working autonomously. And if they right. would want to visualize that in a fancy way, they could this do so. This is exactly right. That like, I think a lot of people have been focusing on are these men in the middle problems, right? What people don't want is the man in the middle. And yeah. so here we talk about analysis, not analytics. Like it should be solving the problems. And if you want to look at what it, how it solved the problem, it will tell you, as opposed to displaying data that then you require somebody smart enough to figure out what the problem is and then go do yeah. something about it. And, but I don't mean to talk that stuff down. I think it's super cool. I think on its own, it's untethered, right? It's not a solution. It's like a No, no, no. I mean, it's like everything else. Just your stuff in isolation without the tools would right. be fantastic, but then it would be like, hard yeah, for someone to actually use it? <laughs> it or deploy it, right? right? So you've created a lot of stuff around it, which I definitely think makes sense. I'm a strong believer in these Unreal Engines and the visualization parts as well, but it also depends on what you want to do. Usually these right. are used to get faster through the source to find out and what to fix. But if there's already a solution that could fix a lot of these kind of things, it's just connecting these two. But it's, right. again, bringing systems and people together through a shared reality. That's been my focus the last year or two, right? Yeah. And I definitely see so that your solution is a really it's good... It's well fit to it. You're exactly, not exactly. <laughs> and those are things that we've got some really cool people that I'm super excited about working on that you'll see both on 
two sides of that problem where we'll enable richer experiences. One is what I call the generative design part, where if you're yeah. an architect or engineer and you want to explore ideas, and then those ideas become reality in actual yeah. systems running. And also in the analysis and analytics point where you can see that right in space, right? And yeah. so those are things that we are enabling. But I do think that they're happiness points as opposed to like core. core I, I mean, value, I disagree right? <laughs> to some extent, but I can see what you're aiming at, right? If you solve the core problem, I wouldn't say that there are happiness points because a lot of these things, you need that to be able to articulate or convey these kind of things from a decision-making perspective. And especially if you're looking at it from a portfolio play where not everything is around building automation purposes. But you want to say, okay, we want to understand more of this and we don't necessarily want to go into floor plans or diagrams and all these kind of things as well. But we actually want to understand this from a perspective so that it makes sense. And when we want to sell these buildings, we also want to show, right, that, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, I don't believe that they're autonomous. Well, you can see here, again, just from a layman's perspective, so to say, right? But I hear you and I disagree a little bit, but I understand exactly what you're saying as well. It's a specific point of view that, like, I think we just think from, like, a marketplace point of view, like, every building needs control. That's a requirement. It's a requirement by law. But only certain people will buy analytics or certain people will buy visualization or these kind of fly-around tools. Fair enough, fair enough. Any final words of wisdom, Troy? Yeah, I think what will be interesting in the marketplace over the next couple of years is how full autonomy plays out on these controlled systems, looking more at generative design and how we connect the life cycle of that building together as like one whole like technology yeah. arc as opposed to this fragmented approach that we have today. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, finally. And of course, if people want to find you, how do they do that? They can go to PassiveLogic.com and read our blogs and read about the products there. And we'll soon you'll soon see some open source work from us in this new world of physics and deep physics technologies. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you like this episode, make sure to tune in to the next one and also see if other episodes could be something for you. Your host, the master of the metaverse, Nicholas Wern. 